Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid, and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just What we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio, was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Alexis Madrigal. Over the last few years, the conversation about reparations has become increasingly specific. Several individual efforts have been launched, and alongside the massive California State Reparations Report, the city of San Francisco established a committee. In September, the SF Board of Supervisors reviewed the 100 recommendations made by that committee, which include establishing a city office dedicated to reparations, programs to support Black-owned businesses, and cash payments to individuals. We'll talk about San Francisco's efforts and the broader movement for reparations. That's all coming up next, after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. The place to start this conversation, I think, is acknowledging that black people in the United States, in California, in San Francisco, were subject to specific and distinct forms of discrimination, racial hatred, and structural violence. Many racial and ethnic groups, from Chinese Americans to Jewish people to the indigenous tribes on whose land we're broadcasting, have suffered at the hands of the American state in its many jurisdictions and forms. And I want to acknowledge that And there's no use denying the specific and terrible things that were done to black Americans from 1619 to today. The question, the dilemma sometimes worried over and sometimes pushed into the background is, what should be done? What do the rest of us, no matter our immigration story or racial background, owe to African Americans to right the wrongs done in our name? Not out of guilt necessarily, but out of common fairness and a desire to make the nation whole. The idea goes by the name of reparations and has a long history. Its latest chapter is the one we're discussing today, these resurgent and more local efforts to repair harm. And as the committees and reports have emerged, it's become pretty clear that even people who agree on the harms may not agree on the specific forms of redress. Joining us to talk about San Francisco's efforts, we've got Otis R. Taylor Jr., managing editor at KQD. Welcome, Otis. Hey, thank you for having me. We've also got Eric McDonald, the chair of the San Francisco African-American Reparations Advisory Committee. Welcome, Eric. Thank you so much for having me. 
And we've got Don Tamaki, a member of the California Reparations Task Force and a partner at Minami Tamaki LLP. Pleased to be here. Thank you. Otis, um, for folks who haven't been paying close attention in the way that you have in leading our efforts here at KQED on reparations, can you give us a lay of the land? What's happening statewide and here in San Francisco? Okay. So where we are is uh, the California Reparations Task Force and San Francisco's African American Reparations Advisory Committee have presented thorough accountings of the legacy of disinvestment in black communities and the ongoing systemic racism that restricts black communities from building their own opportunities, building their own wealth. It restricts black communities from creating sustainable economic mobility. Now, these reports that these committees presented uh, have together almost 300 recommendations for redress, for repairing the harm of centuries of terrorizing black bodies in this country, in this state, in this city. And where we are right now is waiting on um, legislature, um, local government to do something about this thorough accounting of American history. Hmm. Eric, how'd you get involved with the San Francisco task force? Well, I'm a native San Franciscan, uh, and so I have, as I've told on, on many accounts, uh, experienced the tale of two cities. Where I grew up in the Fillmore, um, where, again, most many black folks, not most, but many black folks lived um, and experienced the difference when you literally went from community to community. Mm-hmm. Um, and what was available, what wasn't available, where there was access and opportunity, where folks thrived, where folks struggled. Um, and so when uh, the board of supervisors led by then President Shimon Walton passed legislation to create the, commi- the uh, committee, um, it was, I saw it, Uh, as an opportunity um, to play a hands-on role in trying to bring about the kind of repair I believe is warranted for black San Franciscans. So what's the process like? Talk to us about, you know, kind of starting from then to to releasing the report, at least. How did it go? Sure, sure. Thank you. Uh, So committee is formed in... Legislation is passed, excuse me, in December of 2020. Uh, committee is formed. First meeting is in July of 2021. Um, and we commenced to determine it. One, as we saw it and still see it, our charge was to chronicle the harm. In other words, kind of gather the receipts. Mm-hmm. Um, here's what took place, by whom, uh, perpetrated on whom, uh, and who was harmed. And then identify the um Uh, the appropriate measures of redress and repair that we thought necessary. And so we identified those in four areas, economic empowerment, education, health, and public policy, um, because inside of those, we believe it represents the broad and breadth of harms and redress that we believe that black San Franciscans um, are warranted. And so we commenced to have uh, continue to do research around the harms, as well as continue to invite community into 
the discussion. And what we heard throughout countless hours of public testimony was a comprehensive or broad um, set of testimony that covered both historic harms to families. You know, we once held property in the Fillmore and during urban renewal, um, they stripped it from us and our family has never been the same or they stole the property of our business and our business was never the same. Um, We also heard current pains. I'm living in substandard housing. I can't get access to housing. I'm underemployed. I've experienced discrimination in the workplace and, and the list goes on and on. And so, again, it represented both the past, a kind of historic, but also the very present harms um, that black, black folks are experiencing. And so, you know, to those who would suggest this was about then and not about now, what we heard loud and clear and tried to capture it in our report um, is that, yes, there was then. Um, the origins of this city are founded on some very white supremacist founded um, perspectives and and now that folks are experiencing pain even as we speak. Yeah, you know, as we, we talk about urban renewal, I mean, getting ready for the show, rereading the Federal Housing Act of 1954 and the you know, Supreme Court decision, Berman v. Parker, that made it easier to seize homes um, uh, for blight, so-called blight. And knowing what we know now, it's really tough to, to read those things because we know what was done to black neighborhoods like the Fillmore, but, but others around the, the country as well. How do you make that connection, you know, between those present harms and what happened in the Fillmore, you know, in the in 50s and, and 60s? Well, I think the connection is pretty clear, I mean, as you just alluded to. When you look across cities across the country, and certainly including San Francisco, when you look at where freeways are or are not, um, when you look at where certain populations, not just black folks, but certainly black folks are congregated, right? When you look at urban planning, you see the fingerprints of all the intentionality to deprive um, black folks of access and opportunity, uh, the economic mobility that Otis uh, referenced a, a little earlier. Um, and, and so I think I would suggest that, and we suggest as a committee, um, that the, the evidence is there, that we see where today it is still true, um, where folks are relegated to live, how they are relegated to live, what access and opportunities they have to workforce development and employment, uh, entrepreneurship, access to capital. Uh, The list goes on in terms of the continued deprivation um, that black folks experience in San Francisco. Before we talk a little bit about the state efforts, Otis, on the process, what was the purpose of this Board of Supervisors meeting in September that people may have heard of? Uh, Are they at the point of adopting the recommendations or sort of what are they doing? You want the real election? Yeah, sure. Yes, I do. Yeah. Uh, performative. Yeah. Political theater. It is what does a resolution do for um, the black people living in San Francisco whose, for generations, whose families have dealt with disenfranchisement, um, the confiscation of property, um, the lack of opportunities, uh, We live in a time where pieces of paper and people getting behind something or signing their name to something but not being out there. Where is the pressure from the 11 supervisors who supported the resolution to accept the reparations plan? Where is the pressure on the mayor to 
adopt or to push forward? Where is the pressure on state representatives to do more than just say we support? Where is the action? Hmm. Don, let's talk about the action um, at the state level. Where do things uh, sit there and where, where would the actual next step come, you know, uh, as Otis is talking about here, beyond, you know, pledging support or providing, you know, um, some platitudes around it? Well, with respect to the uh, state task force, which is distinctly different from the uh, mm-hmm. reparations uh, committee in San Francisco, we completed a two-year study to, one, document the harm comprehensively, two, make 115 recommendations for repair to the state legislature, and three, determine ways to educate the public about otherwise this buried and erased history, both recent and and not and distant past. Uh, <clears throat> the legislature is now uh, mulling over, and particularly uh, the California Legislative Black Caucus, about how to implement um, uh, these proposals. So we're now in the implementation hmm. phase. And um, the approach that the California Task Force took is to present these 115 proposals and request that the legislature develop a plan spanning years in order to, in good economies and bad, to begin to address these issues that have never been addressed before. I mean, we're doing this for the first time in both the state level and the municipal level and anywhere. And so uh, the harm was literally centuries in the making. The repairs have to be long in the implementation. Yeah. And that's, that's a big lift for the state. And we're going to talk about um, building that kind of coalition a little bit more later. I wanted to ask you quickly, you know, when you talk about, you know, these, um, you know, 100 and, and some recommendations, do you see that as a menu that legislators will select from? Or do you see it as a package that has to move through together because of the kind of synthesis that would, would come from that? Well, the the proposals are are very varied. So we're talking about health care, policing, housing, uh, the the family, uh, the foster care system, the school to prison pipeline, and so uh, it can't. My feeling is it can't be dealt in one omnibus package, but rather will have to be dealt with separately. In addition, each of those are very complex. And will have to be, you know, separately analyzed. Um, I think the main thing is that there must be a comprehensive approach. That it can't be a one and done. That, that we'll have a piece of legislation, and that that'll be it. Mm-hmm. This will have to be, I think, a permanent part of the California budget to begin to deal with these harms that are so uh, deep and and pervasive uh, within our society. We're talking about recommendations for reparations for African-Americans in San Francisco and California with Don Tamaki, a member of California's Reparations Task Force, Eric McDonald, chair of the San Francisco African-American Reparations Advisory Committee, and Otis Taylor, managing editor here at KQED. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for more. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. 
Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking about recommendations for reparations for African-Americans in San Francisco and California with Otis Taylor, a managing editor at KQED, Eric McDonald, chair of the San Francisco African-American Reparations Advisory Committee, and Don Tamaki, a member of the California Reparations Task Force and a partner with Manami Tamaki LLP. We'd love to hear from you. What do you think about the specific recommendations made by the Reparations Committee here in San Francisco? Are you a black San Franciscan? Have you or your family been impacted by some of the racist practices that we have been talking about? You can give us a call. The number is 866-733-6786. You can email forum at kqed.org. You can find us on Instagram, on Twitter, on threads. We're KQED Forum. I want to add uh, another voice, a a call. Allison Ford is a Bay Area native and a descendant of people who were enslaved. Um, Welcome, Allison. Good morning. Um, Allison, we wanted to have you on to talk about your experience kind of researching your family background, given that in some reparations plans, you know, kind of proving your ancestry, proving that you had at least one enslaved ancestry is an, an important part of that process in some of these. Yeah, sure. So um, I actually didn't have a terribly difficult time uh, tracing my lineage. Um, I was able to do so um, with census records mm-hmm. and um, and military records, draft cards and the like. Yeah. So really, um, I was able to go all the way back to my great, 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 great grandfather um, who was enslaved in Arkansas um, and born in 1824. So um, I I was able to do that in the space of a day by mm. combing through records online. Wow. But what was it like actually kind of going through those records? I mean, one of the criticisms of proposals that have used an ancestry standard is that there might be a process of re-traumatization for people to actually see the kind of documents and and, you know, the institutional components of their ancestors' enslavement. Oh, no, absolutely. I mean, it was it, it was jarring to see, you know, people that I am descended from listed as property mm-hmm. on census records. Um, however, um, I have never personally felt so terribly removed from that part of my family. Um, my great-grandmother... Um, was, you know, around until uh, she was 102 when she passed um, in uh, 2015. And she was of sound mind the entire time. Um, I knew that her grandfather had been enslaved Mm. and that her father um, was a sharecropper and that's how she grew up. So, you know, having a relationship with her and her having had a relationship with someone that was formerly enslaved, it just never felt that far back for me yeah um, present. but 
what I will say is that it it was, um, I mean, I can see where um, some people may feel uh, traumatized by, you know, opening these wounds and going back and digging through these records. Um, but I do think that it's important. Um, personally, that wasn't my experience. I felt more a sense of pride in mm. what um, we were able to come through. Yeah. Um, you know, it's, you know, uh, interesting for me to look at these. And, you know, I found my great, 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 great grandfather, Isaac Broadnecks, and he was enslaved until he was about the age that I am now. Mm. And so that was something that I, I mean, it gave me a very real sense of he lived this much of his life as a slave mm. and then was able to come out of that and, you know, have, um, you know, descendants that have made it this far. And we're, you know, we're, our family is still here. Yeah. How did the Bay Area part of your family story go? Um, well, my great grandmother, um, and you know, actually on both sides of my family, my great grandmothers came from the South, um, and settled in San Francisco. So, um, we've been in the Bay area for many, many years. And were they able to, you know, find housing or buy a house in the, in the area? Yes, actually both of my great grandmothers were, um, you know, uh, they were able to purchase homes, um, in the Bay area. Uh, like, I mean, but we're talking in the 1930s. Um, and I mean, since then, you know, obviously it's difficult for a lot of people mm -hmm. to buy housing now. Um, and that's, you know, in part because of, you know, the, the economy and the housing crisis that is for a lot of us, like a direct result of the inability to create generational wealth. Um, because of things, uh, other institutions that are in place and redlining, et cetera. But um, yes, they were able to purchase homes in the Bay Area, I mean, 90 years ago. Yeah, yeah, yeah right, right. <laughs> um, know, the prices are a little different now. Yeah. What do you What do you think about the, before we let go, what do you think about the reparations efforts going on in San Francisco and California? Well, I'm really just glad this conversation is taking place. Um, I don't think that it is going to be something that will be resolved quickly. Um, and I know that there are a lot of people that are opposed to reparations um, for a number of reasons. And anytime you're putting something like this to a vote, you're essentially asking descendants of oppressors to <laughs> acknowledge that they have benefited from these systems that have been in place, um, even since, you know, slaves were emancipated. So um, I think that it is it, the conversation itself is very important. And I'm actually just happy to be in a place to be in California where this conversation can take place. And people are open minded enough that the conversation is even getting this yeah. far. So I'm I am happy that that it is happening. Um, but I do think that it's going to be a long road before there's some sort of um, commitment to yeah. To to seeing this through. Allison Ford, thank you so much, Bay Area native. You now live in LA, but we, we hope you come back. Thanks for joining us. <laughs> thank <laughs> you so much. Have a great day. Um, Otis, I wanted to ask you about like kind of a an important kind of 
component of a lot of reparations efforts, which is kind of what's the relationship between repairing the legacy of chattel slavery and repairing the specific harms of, say, the 20th century and around housing, education, mass incarceration? That's a very loaded question, but uh, I think to understand why there needs to be reparations, there needs to be a healthy appreciation of how California was founded. The legislature has roots in slavery. Uh, my colleague, Guy Maserati, uh, one of the many stories that we have on kqed.org slash reparations, essentially found a descendant of one of the founding fathers of California, James Estill. He built the monument to mass incarceration that is San Quentin. And, you know, we are told that South Carolina, I mean, excuse me, that's where I'm from, that California <laughs> uh, didn't have uh, slavery, but um, enslavers moved from the South to California and brought their property, their chattel property to California. Now, what we see today is directly linked to enslavement. And I would ask um, the listeners to go to kqed.org slash reparations, read some of the stories. I would ask um, the listeners to read uh, the reports by San Francisco's committee, the state committee, to understand that the roots um, that we're seeing today, um, the roots were planted when this state was founded. Yeah. You know, another kind of, I would say this is a, a difficult thing to parse out, which is these individual harms that have come to people. Eric, I'm going to come to you on this. You know, individual harms that have come to people who say lost their homes as a result of, of urban renewal or um, things related to, you know, being imprisoned. And the kind of cumulative compensation that might be due as a result of just kind of the whole class of folks um, being subject to and to blackness um, at, at structural and institutional levels. Eric, how, how did you think about that on the committee, trying to have these kind of two different things, which might actually call for different kinds of, of redress? I think great question because it underscores the the depth and impact of the harms. In other words, these harms were both individual, individual lives, individual families. They were also community and systemic, right? They, when, when urban renewal took place, it didn't just steal the individual properties. It devastated a community and all the fabric that made up that community, all of the culture that had been created. And so arguably, therefore, and we believe so, uh, that the redress needs to address all of that. So, yes, the individuals need to be, quote unquote, compensated in terms of redress and repair. And then the the fabric that was destroyed, the culture needs to be addressed as well. And so there is a, and we call for in our uh, report, 
we speak about it as spatial justice, right? And, and reinvesting in and recreating the spaces and places of black presence and prominence and culture that was devastated. And so, yes, there are two levels, as your question um, identifies, there are two levels at least, right, of, of harm and as a result, two at least levels of, of repair. Yeah. You know, one listener writes in to say, I, will hope, I hope you will discuss what was done to residents of Russell City, a thriving community of African-Americans and Latinos and a center of blues music in Hayward. Those families built a community and asked for basic services, including water, electrical, and sewer service, and were repeatedly denied. Marin City is another of the many communities that were redlined and denied an equal chance. Parchester Village in Richmond, California, yet another local community that was harmed. Reparations are definitely in order, and we should think about extending it to include those not directly descended from an enslaved person as people of color were indiscriminately discriminated against regardless of being able to prove a connection to slavery. Let's just table that discussion for some other show um, at, at this particular moment. But what this, what this question gets at for me... Uh, and you know, and you can add, you know, East Palo Alto. You could add West Oakland. There's a whole bunch of different places that you could add to this list. Eric, what it goes to me for is like, is San Francisco the right level, or like maybe, maybe because I believe you're on the commission, you know, how would you say San Francisco is the right level to try and address reparations? Thank you. I, well, I, what I would say is. It is a level. I don't know that I would declare it to be the right level, right? Arguably, as you just articulated, there are unfortunately so many examples of this, these kinds of discriminatory, exclusionary practices across this country. Uh, and so what has been encouraging um, is that it, it, while San Francisco, has, we have been doing our work, there have been efforts across easily 75 to 100 local municipalities across the country, right? Um, we haven't seen another state level like we have here in California, um, but these efforts are happening. Um, and I believe they're all critically important because arguably there is a case to be made city by city then there's a case to be made state by state. And then there certainly is a federal case to be made for reparations, because sadly, this country has in its history um, these discriminatory practices that were intentionally perpetrated on black folks um, and, and then continuing through people of color in general um, across this country over the history of this country. And so there is arguably a case to be made at each of those levels. Yeah. Um, Dr. Marquette, I wanted to um, use what happened with Japanese Americans, a bit of a, a, a little mini case study here. Um, you fought for reparations for Japanese Americans who were imprisoned um, during World War II, including your own, your own parents. Can you talk a little bit about what was similar and different about the work you've done on the state task force for reparations and, and what happened with Japanese Americans? Well, obviously, there's no equivalence between four years in a concentration camp and 400 years of continuous uh, rebounding, compounding racial oppression. But there are some lessons to be learned. The process itself was 20 years. And so if you ask the public uh, when this thing was suggested, reparations for Japanese Americans, in, the in 1969, 1970, the answer would have been twofold, no and hell no. So it took a 20-year process to educate the public about what had happened. We didn't even know within our own community what each of our uh, families had suffered. And so it began actually with two bills within Congress, one merely to study this, uh, which was in 1980 to set up a commission and 10 hearings. And once there was a critical uh, 
point of public opinion, it was followed by another bill, uh, a money bill in 1988 for monetary atonement, I'll call it. Um, one of the differences is that Congress passed those bills, uh, but in 1989, uh, Representative John Conyers of Detroit proposed just a commission study bill. It mirrored our bill to study it. And Congress has not shown the will to even study this issue, let alone doing anything about it. So it, it, right, it's been reintroduced in every uh, session of Congress since, every, right? Yes. Yeah. And so it's really been fallen on local uh, localities to move the ball forward. And after the murder of George Floyd, the legislature was propelled, really, to set up this uh, commission to both document the harm and to make actual recommendations for repair. So cash payments have generated the most controversy uh, where wherever they've been been suggested across the country. Um, what are your thoughts about that, Don, as, as given that there were two separate bills and that cash payments did eventually come for uh, survivors of these camps? Well, the, <clears throat> the press has really sort of disproportionately given the impression that it's really a singular call mm -hmm. for monetary uh, compensation, individual compensation. It is not. Uh, out of 115 proposals the state, uh, uh, the state task force recommends, only one of them deals with individual compensation. The rest have to do with, as Eric mentioned, the systemic uh, issues uh, that have created these huge and growing disparities in the first place. Um, nevertheless, we did hire four economists to actually crunch numbers where data exists uh, to measure some economic level of the harm. And we felt it's important for Americans to know the economic extent, the harm of the impact. And if you just took a community like the Fillmore District, in which 20,000 uh, black uh, residents were displaced, almost 900 black businesses just destroyed, many people never to become homeowners again, if you just took that one community, the losses are enormous. They are astronomical. Uh, a 2007 study found there were 2,332 eminent domain projects nationwide in 900 cities, almost a million people displaced, two-thirds of whom were African-American. Mm -hmm. And so if you just took that one uh, data point in and of itself, the numbers are large. And so the public has some sticker shock about this. Why? Because we're revealing this for the first time. But the state task force didn't take the next step, which was to say, and the state must pay this amount. What we did do is present an array of proposals, 115 of them. And we didn't say, uh, for example, individual compensation was more important than reducing black infant mortality rate in San Francisco, which is five times the rate of white infant mortality. We'd say legislature, time to legislate, deal with each of these 115 proposals, come up with an approach spanning years to begin to address this enormous harm. Yeah. Uh, a listener writes in to say, I support the idea of reparations for African Americans that have historic connections to slavery in the United States. Having grown up in Orangevale in the Sacramento area, I've experienced significant racism. My grandparents and other relatives experienced deliberate destruction of their businesses by what your guests have described as common, common governmental practice throughout the United States. That is, freeways being built through their businesses and other examples of eminent domain being used as a pretense to destroy black economic progress. People need comprehensive restorative assistance, uh, more than a one-time payment, and a one-time payment may also erase any possibility of an ongoing commitment to continuous improvement of African-American communities. 
Uh, we're talking about recommendations for reparations for African Americans in San Francisco and California. Stay tuned for more right after the break. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking about recommendations for reparations for African Americans in San Francisco and California with Don Tamaki, a member of the California Reparations Task Force and a partner with Minami Tamaki LLP. Otis Taylor, a managing editor here at KQED, who's been leading our reparations coverage. Eric McDonald, chair of the San Francisco African American Reparations Advisory Committee. And earlier this morning, you might have heard Allison Ford, a Bay Area native who now it's displaced and lives in Los Angeles. We want to hear from you. What do you think about the specific recommendations made by the Reparations Committee? You can try the phone number, 866-733-6786. If you can't get through there, you can try forum at kqed.org. Been really appreciating these thoughtful comments. You can also try you know, Twitter, threads, Instagram, all the other things. We're KQED Forum. So I uh, Eric, I wanted to ask you what feels to me like a, a, a difficult question about building what needs to be kind of a multiracial, longtime coalition for, for reparations. If this is going to happen, it's going to need that. Let's say I'm a second generation Chinese American in San Francisco. How do you make the case to, to that family that, um, that this is worth doing for the city as a whole? really great question. And it, for me and, and the committee, this work has really been fundamentally about calling, in our case, the city into account for its harms to black San Franciscans uh, and the anti-black, um, in some cases, white supremacist posture, right, that drove much of that behavior. And so what we're calling for is not a... Um, we're not making, rather, the case that the harms to black folks are superior to the harms to other communities or uh, somehow we, should, we are favored over others. We're simply saying we believe the history and facts speak for themselves and they warrant redress and repair. And we believe that much of the racial tension that still exists in this city of St. Francis is in part informed or influenced by the fact that we've never brought reconciliation. We've never handled truth and reconciliation for blacks or other communities. And we believe that in that spirit of, you know, 
all boats uh, rise. We believe that if we do this and do it well, just as many of the benefits other communities have experienced as a result of the civil rights movement, we believe this is similar in nature. Hmm. That if we do this well, it paves the way for a readiness on behalf of, again, staying here in San Francisco, on behalf of the city to fully own and fully lean into reconciling all of the ways in which racial discrimination have played across multiple communities. And so we're saying right now, here's an opportunity. Please join us. You know, Otis, I wanted to think a little bit about sequencing of some of these recommendations as well. I mean, if you look at both the the state and um, the, the city reports, there are policies that sort of would disproportionately and materially help black people, but are not only for black people. And there are policies that are specifically targeted um, at, at black people to help in, in specific ways. Do you think there's a political advantage or a social advantage or, or something in, in going to one of those two things first? Now, that is a great question. Uh, before we do that, I think uh, we need to establish what both committees have offered uh, that we do is an office to of reparations to manage um, what needs to come first and also to take on the burden of explaining why um, this is necessary. And I'm not talking about reparations in general. I'm talking about the uh, question you're saying, what should come first? What is uh, necessary for um repairing harm, what is essential. And as uh, Don said, uh, you know, they gave recommendations. They didn't say uh, what you should do first or what is a priority. It's here's a list. Um, Now, uh, that Office of Reparations could make that determination, Alexis, and um, using some of the data gathered by both committees to um, suggest for our uh, elected officials, this is what we should do first. Now, um, I think there's some delay, some some um, hesitation to set up that the, these offices um, in, in San Francisco and uh, at the state level. Mm. Let's bring in a call here. Nadia in San Francisco. Welcome to the show. Hi, thank you for having me, and thank you for all your speakers. Um, I think it it provides a lot of us uh, San Franciscans hope that this conversation is being reignited. Um, I did just want to share a thought that I have. (laughs) Being born and raised here, uh, now going on third-generation Palestinian in San Francisco, it baffles me that the um, descendants... um, that faced so much oppression that built this country um, still have to justify uh, what happened. And um, people are shocked at, you know, this, the term was used that was used, the sticker shock, um, or people are baffled by the idea that um, African-Americans should get any kind of money when the descendants of the oppressor continue to receive that money. Um, so I think, you know, it's 2023, um, and we still have to justify this. Uh, we do have a way to go, but the conversation has to continue. So thank you all for dedicating your time and your energy, um, to, towards this. And I believe (laughs) if the, um, uh, 
Jewish descendants that survived the Holocaust were able to get reparations um, from the descendants of Nazi Germany, there is hope to see um, some justice in our lifetime. And if not in our lifetime, for the generations to come. So thank you all. Thank you, Nadia. Appreciate that uh, that um, call and that, that perspective. I mean, one reason for collecting this information, for building the case, right, is that specific harms could be tied to specific forms of redress, right? And when we think about something like so, so many of these things draw their wealth power because they've lens through our housing and our financial systems. And Anne writes in to say, are the private institutions like banks being asked to pay restitution for the years and years of gouging uh, people of color, which is institutionally absolutely irrefutable um, at this point. So, um, Eric, could you talk a little bit about how you've tried to swing the the report around some of those private institutions and, and banks specifically? Thanks for the question. Uh, unfortunately, the you know local municipalities nor state legislature, for that matter, have sufficient power right, to hold a call to account um, private actors, but no question, private actors, banking institutions, insurance industry, uh, and the list goes on, uh, have benefited tremendously on the backs of slavery, child slavery as an industry, and then coming forward. Um, One of the things that, one of the recommendations, rather, in the San Francisco report is to strengthen, to the degree possible, um, what has been on the books now since, I believe, 2007. There is a slavery ordinance that is on the books in San Francisco that requires institutions to self-report, private institutions self-report where they have or how they have benefited on the backs of, again, slavery, et cetera. Um, And uh, sadly, many have self-reported. We're good. Hands are clean. (laughs) Hands are clean. We looked and we found nothing, right? Um, And again, unfortunately, because it is self-disclosure, there's not a lot that can be done post that. But there is the intention there. I will tell you that as we began our work, uh, we tried to enlist and engage many across industry to engage at least in the conversation and wouldn't even come to the table. That's really interesting. We're uh, talking about recommendations for reparations for African-Americans in San Francisco and in California with Eric McDonald, chair of the San Francisco African-American Reparations Advisory Committee, Otis Taylor, managing editor at KQED, Don Tamaki, who's a member of the California Reparations uh, Task Force. You know, um, Eric, I I do want to ask you about the the money aspect of it. It, Obviously, made a lot of headlines. It is recommendation one point one of the of the report uh, would be a, a five million dollar uh, lump sum. When you know, in other reparations work that I have seen, um, there's occasionally like very complex calculations about how a number was arrived at. How did you all think about this on the the San Francisco committee? As you referenced, it was 1.1, and one would have thought, based upon the reaction, that was the only recommendation. <laughs> like There was nothing beyond 1.1. And again, I just want to underscore what Don said, both in the California as well as in the San Francisco report. It was 1.1, again, of 152 recommendations. And so um, while it was 1.1, it was not the only uh, 
you know, and primary recommendation. That said, there are many perspectives around what's the most um, <clears throat> politically expedient way to move this work forward. Some would argue only ask for what we believe they can do, o- only ask for what we believe is palatable. Um, and we just took a different approach. We said, here's what we believe fundamentally that the pathways to economic mobility is what was primarily stolen from black families and communities. And therefore, it requires a capital investment to put them back on that path and give them sufficient resources to rebuild what was destroyed. And we believe $5 million. We're actually not sure that that's sufficient, but we believe that it's an appropriate investment. And we were determined to be clear and declarative about that and not be strapped with is it feasible? Is it politically expedient? Um, can the city afford it? Um, because our other perspective is this is a long term recovery effort. Um, and so whether it is a one lump sum or several payments over time or some other method of, of payment that is appropriate and warranted. And the last thing I'll say is, you know, it's very frustrating to me personally and, and, and to the committee that, as, as the caller said a few moments ago, that we're having to justify, you know, the, the warranting any form of repair, including the financial repair. Yeah. Let's bring in caller uh, Dale in San Francisco. Welcome, Dale. Hello. Well, good to be here. I, I just wanted to bring up a personal story, having done some ancestry work recently. And I, I knew I had ancestors from the South back in the uh, 1700s and 1800s and never knew what the story was. But then finally seeing the whole thing and realizing that my ancestors had had slaves in, in Kentucky in particular for generations. And at the after abolition and post-Civil War, I realized that the, the family of that particular generation, a great, great grandfather had 10 children and the, the older ones that had um, be, or adults continued to stay agrarian at farmers and the younger ones that grew up post-civil war when they had sold the land and moved west moved to arkansas they all got educations they went to school they became doctors and, and lawyers and, and you just saw this split and i realized that that system in which they'd been living in when it was even when the slaves got their freedom, they didn't get to leave with anything. They got their freedom, but there were no resources. Whereas the generation of my family, they left that farm that they had all been working uh, with the material resources to continue on and, and get an education. And that's when it just hit me that, wow, rep- I totally get the reparations things now. Hmm. Very hey, clear. Yeah. Hey, Dale, I, I appreciate that. I mean, anyone here want to react to this? Um, yeah. Yes, that's uh, uh, I mentioned the story earlier that my colleague Guy Marzorati did. He tracked down a descendant of one of California's founding fathers um, who had unearthed that history of um, this guy who was lionized in his family and um, shared stories about how difficult it was having conversations with his cousins, with his relatives, and how they asked him not to bring that history forward. And he said, who, who am I if, if I don't speak up about this? And I, I think that's what we need from um, people to recognize the history and acknowledge that um, we need to repair the harm. Yeah. Um, you know, Paula writes in to say, 
I've been thinking about reparations a lot. Some ideas may be worthwhile. 30 years of interest-free mortgages, 30 years of free college or zero-interest student loans, 30 years of free child care, 30 years of zero-interest car loans. That amount of time would allow people uh, with racial vices, I think, you know, racist people to retire and new people to take their place. And by that point, many African-Americans will be lifted up and have the same advantages of, of any other um, American. I mean, both reports have these suggestions in them, right? I mean, that this is this is kind of the the broad spectrum approach to reparations. You want to, um, Eric? Do you want to take that on? Just uh, list out a few of those other kinds of things. Well, we call for all, all that you just articulated. We call for um, access to free access to early childhood education, free access to health care, free access to. Um, interest-free loans for capital investment in in, uh, entrepreneurship. We call for um, the creation of um, uh, free higher education. So, yes, those are the pathways that create, again, opportunities for black folks to rebuild, uh, and we think they're they're warranted. Yeah. Um, Last thing, you know, I I was kind of inspired by some of the the work going on around the country, Um, and, you know, in Evanston, even though they made like a in Evanston, Illinois, people may or may not know they've taken some kind of small steps. Um, and uh, this is from Robin Rue Simmons. It's a quote. She says, we have to take a first step towards repair and not be paralyzed at the breadth and scope of the work needed to repair and start someplace so we can build upon the work as in every other policy that we've uh, done. Otis, when you look around the country and you see other cities doing things. Do you see any other kind of building blocks that could be added here? Or do you think like we're kind of leading here in the Bay Area and in the state in terms of kind of enumerating the different kinds of repair that could happen? Right. I think it's the latter, Alexis. Uh, I don't know of more comprehensive work than what I've seen from the state task force and San Francisco. Um, The Bay Area prides itself on being progressive. Well, here's the progressive work. It's on paper. How do we make it actionable? And that's the the work that we have to do at KQED covering um, the reparations movement. Yeah. Um, Don Tamaki, uh, what could we inspect next from the, the state commission? Are you all still seated or are you done and you're, you know, just going back to private practice now? Well, we're, <clears throat> the task force is over, um, but we realize uh, that um, the last two years of really hard, intense, dedicated work won't matter unless the next two years and more matters. So each of the task force members have committed to basically begin to organize public support uh, for the concept of reparations, knowing that unless we move the needle of public opinion, uh, the legislature may not have the political uh, will to get this done. So there has to be a twofold approach. One is within the legislature to address these issues that Eric and Otis have uh, have listed. Uh, but the second part is for each of us in the community to civically engage in many ways to get involved in this issue, educate ourselves, and to move the needle uh, in the right direction. We've been talking about recommendations for reparations for African-Americans in San Francisco and in the state with Don Tamaki, a member of the State Reparations Task Force, Eric McDonald, chair of the San Francisco African-American Reparations Advisory Committee, and Otis Taylor, managing editor with KQED.
going out to a song from The Last Black Man in San Francisco. Really good movie. Thank you all so much for joining us. Thank you, Alexis. Thank you so much for having us. Thank you. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for the next Hour Forum with Mina Kim. Funds for the production of KQED's Forum are provided by the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, the Germanicos Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country. We need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.